Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Joshua 1. Joshua 1 begins like this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying... This is pretty much the context of Joshua and the beginning of the histories. Note uh, that it starts with after, in that it immediately picks up where Deuteronomy left off. So you would say, why then call these books the Torah or the Pentateuch and these books the histories? Why is there a big split there in tradition? And it's largely because the Pentateuch is the books or the scrolls that Moses primarily authored and took care of. As we move forward into the histories, we have a lot of different authors. And so the story gets continued. And the instructions have been given. The law has been given. Now we get to see how human beings carry out the law as God releases kind of direct authority over Israel and kind of lets them step by step run their own lives and do their own thing. So the context of the book is that Joshua is going to continue where Moses took off, and verse 1 sets that up. Um, the book, it literally is minutes. It's the next sentence from, from that other piece. So here we are in the histories. The histories are going to go from Joshua all the way through the book of Esther. So we'll be in the histories for quite some time. And then we'll have another major party, I think, or at least we should. Um, and then each of these are going to show, each of these histories are going to show the eventual failing of Israel to follow God's law, which sets up then a need for another revelation. So then we're going to get, and then there's going to be a series of prophecies that come out that are scattered throughout those histories. And then the basic, the basic need that Israel has is they need a savior. They need someone that can redeem them from this, this history of, of failing to do what God's asked them to do. Moses prophesies they're going to fall away. Each of these stories in the histories also bear an image of Christ, right? Imagio Christos. And that is also something that Mo Moses prophesied is that there would be a Messiah that would come. So the two major critiques of Joshua, and you guys know I love this geek. It's worth getting into because if we're going to defend our faith, we need to know what other people say about our faith. So Joshua is one of the books that gets targeted a lot, not as much as Deuteronomy and definitely not as much as Leviticus, but it gets targeted, and it, these are the two major critiques against Joshua. The first critique is that it just never happened, that what we're about to read is a fake history. That's problematic because the same people that say that also say that the uh, God's order to execute people is an immoral order. So it's odd because you can't make an immoral order or action in something that never happened. So it's odd that a lot of times you see these critiques from the exact same author. Um, but those are the two critiques. And we've talked about this. We've had, we've had this come up a lot. We've already talked about this idea that God wants to clear out an area for his people and he's given them fair warning to do that so those are the two critiques keep those in mind as we go through the book of joshua and see if those critiques hold up let's just read the book and see where we come out out of that and i would argue i would argue on point number one 
that if this is a history or historical account, and we are reaching at this point about 1500 BC, there should be archaeological evidence of the things we're about to talk about. So I get to read all the archaeology magazines. Um, so thank you for giving me an opportunity to do that and share that and bring that back to you. So like when we get to Jericho, should be archaeological evidence in Jericho. We should be able to find it and dig it up. So we're gonna we're gonna share that, and you're gonna see what that looks like, and we're gonna go into, you know, each phase. There's been about three major archaeological digs at Jericho. About every 30 or 40 years, they've done some sort of dig. The most recent ones from a couple of Italians, um, and they're secular Italians, and what they're finding there is absolutely stunning. So we're gonna find as we go through Joshua that the histories actually are supported by archaeology. Right? Actually, I said that totally wrong. The Bible isn't supported by archaeology. Archaeology is validated because of the Bible. Um, this Bible was written well before any archaeologist found something in the dirt. So I'll stand corrected on that. Um, but archaeology does correlate or mirror what we see. It can show us a lot. It can't show us everything. And that's true of a lot of science. It can only show what the data in front of them makes available to them. And that's where as critical thinkers, we need to understand when we hear scientists, that's how it comes out. Uh, another thing about the book of Joshua, Paul talks about the histories. And when he talks about the histories of 1 Corinthians 10.6, if you want to kind of peek there, um, the histories give us, uh, actually 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to use two references from that passage. One, the histories are examples of us not to follow. So we're supposed to read these books and see like the way not to do it when we get through the histories. Uh, and that's one thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.6. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.11, Paul also says these are examples we're supposed to follow. Joshua is mostly examples we're supposed to follow. There's a couple little side things in there, but for the most part, we're not just supposed to read these as histories. That's a literal reading of this. According to Paul, we're supposed to read these from a spiritual perspective too. We're supposed to see models for our life, both negative and positive models and how we're supposed to do things. The stories of God taking territory from enemies is supposed to inform our spiritual life on how we take territory from the enemy. And it's really exciting when you see the Holy Spirit moving amongst people, like what we talked about before the Bible study, where there's hundreds and thousands of people that have really struggled with unity. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit moves amongst that people, and there's unity. And it's very powerful, but it's about doing spiritual battle, doing it intentionally, being smart about how we do things, and being loving and gracious while we do it. You know, Mike, you were talking about how this image of Jesus is a joyful human being, is this beautiful image of God and how he does things. When we do battle, it comes with song sometimes. Like, we do battle not like the world does battle, but like the God tells us and commands us to do battle. So... Anything that can be done to discourage God's people from reading the history, it's being done. If you look out in the secular world right now, there's all sorts of attacks about like this. It's not worth reading. It's fantasy. All of these things. Just because these stories are how we're supposed to live our life. We just got done with the Pentateuch, which tells us what God wants. Now we're going to get all these examples of how people try to live that out and fail and succeed in order for us to model our lives according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Like, why wouldn't we get into this stuff? And why wouldn't we read it and see it as a model for our life? So, last but not, well, two other major points to set up the book of Joshua and the histories. There's a biblical progression going on here, and we need to be aware of that. So from Genesis 1 through the Torah and Pentateuch, um, God has set some things up, 
And when we get to the histories, if we started at Genesis 1 and we're reading straight through it, I believe God is doing something to our hearts and he's cultivating us in a certain kind of way. And if we got to this point and we're thinking rigorously about what we've read, we should be asking a few questions right now. Because if we know what God wants from us and we know that God's promised the blessings, we should be asking, okay, how do we get those? Right? And the God's told us what to do. Read my word and do it. And it's like, okay, God, but that's really general. I want a progressive revelation on how I actually do that. How I Because God doesn't speak about what I should be doing at Walmart tomorrow. Where does he? And do we get that information? Here's another question. Where do we get to set up the place that got mentioned through the Pentateuch? Like, where is that going to be? And why, are, why, why is that place going to get picked? And we got some clues in Moses' blessings about... Benjamin as a tribe, <laughs> Judah as a, you know, a place where the Messiah is going to be born. The place is still really vague, and we're supposed to be asking about that. How does God talk to us now that Moses is gone? Now that we only have the law in writing, how does God actually speak to us? That question's actually come up when we do our conversation. So for people in the podcast, they can hear this. After we've got done, I think three weeks in a row now, we've had that conversation, right? Well, how does God actually speak to us now? We don't hear voices from burning bushes, so what does it look like today? When we go through the histories, we're going to see how God's voice changes from how he communicates to Moses. It's going to be very different with how he communicates with the various people through the histories. In other words, God's a really big, powerful God, and he can communicate to humans however he darn well pleases. And we're going to learn that through the histories. But the question that dri that drives is, how does God speak to me? And how do I hear God? And which one's going to be? I'm going to see examples, but... They're all things I can try to listen to God in different ways. And I think God does that because he wants our hearts to be seeking him. If he made it easy, it wouldn't have a lot of value, right? Things that are precious take time and effort. Here's another question. Can we really beat sin? And I think this is such a big question in, in, with Christians right now. We've got this false teaching going around that you'll never beat sin. It'll always be in your life. And we are all sinners saved by grace. But throughout the Bible, they say the standard of purity that goes out there. And with the understanding that we will fall short of that purity, just like they do through all of the histories, the pursuit of it never goes away. And when we quit trying for purity, something breaks in us that's not healthy. So when we just give that up and we allow sin to just exist in our life and happily grow, it's a corruption that destroys us. We're going to see that throughout the histories again and again. And in the book of Joshua, we're going to see Israel starting off on the right foot like a newly saved Christian. They're on fire for Christ. They're blowing trumpets and marching around walls, and they're rocking it, and then they're going to kind of start falling short. It becomes this model of the Christian life. Okay, here's another question. What does it look like to be a courageous believer? And how do we know and identify what that looks like and get that story? I think this is amazing. And what does it look like to be a strong believer? Because he tells Joshua, be, be strong and courageous. Okay, well, let's see what that looks like. How does a strong and courageous believer do things? And I always like the question, and I think it's a great question. Can I do this? Can I even do what is being asked here? And the end result of this, don't get too discouraged, is heck no. You can't do any of this. You can only try. And that's all God asks of you. He never asks you to get there. He only asks you to follow with the next footstep you're supposed to take. And that journey and that growth that happens is amazing. Okay, then the geeky stuff, typologies. The story of Joshua, we got tons of typologies, or and I would say Christophanies in some places, but Steph might disagree with me on that. 
major typologies that a lot of commentators see in the book of Joshua. One, if the Old Testament is, is about redemption from Egypt, the New Testament is about redemption with Jesus. And we can see that typology happening. First John, for the law was given through Moses. I'm sorry, John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see the, the comparison? And we're supposed to understand things about Jesus by reading about what happens in the histories and with Moses. We're supposed to understand Jesus better because we've read these things. And we can understand these things better because we know about the revealed truth of Jesus Christ. And it opened all the disciples' eyes. The thing the disciples did, when, like when Paul spent three years, you know, within one sentence, there's like this missing three years right after he got saved. You know what he was doing? He was pouring over the Old Testament. Because once you see Jesus, the whole Old Testament transforms right in front of you. So that's kind of cool. So both of them have a lot of these examples. I'm just going to give you a bunch of them to start out. The destination in the Old Testament is the promised land. The destination in the New Testament is the promised kingdom, right? So there's destination in both of them. Uh, we're supposed to make a scout's effort at both. Um, the Israelites are going to make that scout's effort in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, being freed from sin, God's grace is going to make that effort for us. We don't have to make any more effort. It's this new covenant. And Canaan is not heaven. It's not even close to heaven, but it represents living at peace with God by being where God wants you to be. So I think that's a better typology here. It's not like they're going towards heaven. They're going towards a life where God wants them. So they don't really arrive or find rest in that life. Um, Canaan then is a picture of rest, and it is a worthy goal for the Israelites. God trains his people after he redeems them. Jesus trains his people after he saves them. There's nothing that we do to get saved. Uh, but then as part of that training is that there's battles to fight, Galatians 4.4. We're going to fight some battles when we get to be a believer. If you're a joyful, happy believer and you love the Lord, there's going to be people that want to control you that really don't like that because you just don't bow to that. You bow to the Lord. God doesn't free us from something without pointing us towards something. Just doesn't do it. What's the point of saving you from sin if he's not going to send you in a direction of holiness? So like millions of Hebrews are going to die in the desert, millions of Christians get saved and die by never accessing or pursuing God's rest in their life. And we all know these people, and it's kind of sad. They're saved, but they're dead, and they're just drying up out in the wilderness, just like all these saved Israelites died in the wilderness. And then my favorite, which I've already told you about. In the Old Testament, you have Yeshua, Joshua, and in the New Testament, you have Yeshua, Jesus. In case we're a little dim, that's the exact same name. Um, one uh, translated into English in the form of Joshua and another translated into the Greek in the name of Jesus. And it's the same root word in both cases, identical. In both the Old and New Testament, God works through Yeshua to get his people to a place of rest. Super cool stuff. Jehovah's salvation then is just a simple transliteration. I mean, it's just really easy to catch. So whatever they get in their freedom comes after Yeshua. And whatever Israel's going to do throughout the histories, it comes after Yeshua has entered their life and gotten them where they need to be. Anything we do as Christians starts after we find Yeshua and come into salvation. Uh, Titus 3.6, when he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, all our blessings come through Jesus. Kind of cool stuff. And then last, but not least, before we actually get into the verses, sorry for all this setup. I feel, why, not, why am I apologizing for the setup? I love the setup. 
the book of Ephesians. If you want a side Bible study, we've already done all the recordings for Ephesians. Ephesians and Joshua go together like a hand in a glove. And I wonder sometimes if Ephesians wasn't being read by the writer in their devotions while they wrote Ephesians. Both of them speak of a spiritual journey, entering into the rest of God and coming to the place where God wants you to be. Both of them talk about how to get through that journey. Both of them talk about what you need to get through that journey. So they are, it's a great companion Bible study to start right now as we go through the book of Joshua. Um, and we'll be in Joshua for about eight, nine weeks. Why do I even say that? We'll be in Joshua as long as we're in Joshua. Uh, so let's go back to verse one. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, um, again, after, the Lord spoke is the source of all credibility in verse, verse one. You should underline the Lord spoke. It is not that Joshua spoke. And I like, frankly, the son of Nun. I really like that. I know it, this is totally not the Hebrew but I just like, he's the son of nobody. Like, a lot like Jesus was the son of God. There was no human that he was technically the son of. But, and I know that that's just a weird thing. But in the English, at least, I like that the word none means none. Um, God talks, um, but Moses was the only one he talked to face to face. So in this case, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of none. It does not give us the means by which the Lord spoke to Joshua. Where with Moses, we did know the means of how it happened. But we do know that it's direct to Joshua. Joshua feels like the Lord spoke to him. Joshua still dis defines himself as Moses' assistant, even after Moses is dead. And I think that's awesome. I think that's just the legacy of Moses and the heart of Joshua is seen through that. The service to God takes precedence. Um, Joshua gives himself this really humble title because after 40 years of serving Moses, that is his identity. He's the guy that helped Moses out all the time. Um, that would mean some things. And to be real blunt, a person's assistant, when you sleep in a tent every night and you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you don't want to get out of the camp because you're 110 years old, you use a chamber pot. The person that cleans out that chamber pot is your assistant. Comes into the tent, cleans things out, makes the bed, makes sure there's fire on the fire outside the tent. That's what Joshua did for 40 years. Kind of a neat guy. Just served a man who he knew was doing God's work. So Moses' assistant. Um, it prioritizes the importance of the servant of God. And I think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right? And it wasn't to show the disciples how to, you know, clean feet. He's trying to show them how to be a servant when he did that. So last will be first, the first will be last. Many are called, but few are chosen. I like that verse because we're watching The Chosen right now. Uh, but Matthew 20, 16, that idea that Joshua was the lowest of positions as a servant, and now he's been risen up to the first position in the kingdom. And Jesus even lived a life that looked like that. Verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan. So my servant is God talking. He's speaking to Joshua. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given it to you, as I said to Moses. So the word Jordan the Jordan River. Uh, in the Hebrew, it means descending. It was a river that in the spring would be a rushing torrent of water because I looked it up because we were watching and saw mountains in the background. There actually are snow-capped mountains in the northern parts of Israel. So when that would thaw out, the Jordan River would take that and it becomes a, 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 a storming river in its flood stages. 
Uh, there's no bridge at this period in history over the Jordan River. You don't cross the Jordan River unless, there's, unless you wait an entire season. You wait months for it to happen. So when God says this to Joshua, it happens to be the spring season when that river was full of flood and it would be impossible to cross. And he says, arise, go over this Jordan, which implies that they're within visual sight of it because you don't say this Jordan unless you're right there. Go over this Jordan. This people are right there within sight. God is giving them the land, is in the present tense. This land which I am giving to them is in the present tense. But then in verse 3, it's in the past tense. Again, showing an eternal God that's past, present, and future. And also this idea, in the present tense, he's giving it to Israel. But in the past tense, he's giving it to Joshua. Do you see that? With Joshua, it's already been done. With Israel, eh, we'll see how that goes. And, that, and they're not going to claim all the land that we're going to see in verse 4. Because Joshua has already, it's already his claim, and God's already said, you're gonna, this is the territory you're capable of taking over. That's been done in the past tense. Uh, but the idea that Israel has to do some work, it says in verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot treads. If you don't advance, you don't get the territory. So as the tribes start moving forward and we go through this, we're going to see again and again and again uh, this idea of advancement having something to do with pushing things back or moving things forward. Uh, the phrase driven out is going to get used. Did I talk about that or is that coming? These are my old notes. Let me check one thing. All right, if it's later, I'll get into it. All right, here's one of the cool things. When we get through Joshua and into Judges, one of those critiques, this immorality of having people kill, God actually commands them to drive out other people. And the word has everything to do with how we move sheep and cattle. A good shepherd does not slaughter their sheep, but a good shepherd does move the sheep in a certain direction. So historically speaking, the Canaanites at this period of history through the book of Joshua do a diaspora. They scatter all over from Turkey down to Iraq, down to Egypt. There's Canaanites that migrate into those lands during this period of history. And that's secular archaeology and history. So we have bones from Canaanites. There's genetic testing that's been done. At this period in history, the Canaanites go everywhere in part because the command specifically wasn't for them to be mass slaughtered. The command was to drive them out and the God would make that happen. He'd put a fear in their heart so most of the Canaanites would get the heck out of there because they're largely a migratory people and it didn't matter to them and why would you stand up against two million Israelites? The Israelites are coming, God's blessed them. See what he did to the Egyptians. God's put all that in their heart now for 40 years. The legends have spread. The ones that stay and stand against the Israelites are there because they are going to fight the Israelites. So the Israelites' job is to just simply drive them out, and God's going to make that happen. We'll see that in some of these battles. We'll see that play out. So first point being with the, the soles of your feet is that taking territory takes effort. Christians actually have to do something to take territory against the world. And as the world presses in, Christians have to actually act in the world in order to be able to take territory. If Christians simply go to church on a Sunday morning or even frankly add a Bible study on a Sunday night and then the rest of the week you do nothing to share your faith with other people, to take stands when God's called you to do that, 
to be graceful and loving and forgiving when God's put it on your heart to do that, there's no territory that's going to be taken because you're not moving the way God's telling you to move. So he gives Joshua the land, um, but the sole of their feet has to, ha has, to take, has to take steps to go there. So effort, I think, if we want to logically think through this, when we make an effort or when we walk somewhere or take a step somewhere, the only reason humans ever take a step is because we want to take a step. We have to have a desire for doing something. So when we go from slavery, uh, you know, away from away from sin, or as they break out of Egypt, then there ha then there's this period of kind of rebellion in the wilderness where they're dried up and not really what they're doing what they're supposed to do. Or this third option that Joshua is going to give them: go fight for your life, and go take those steps towards where you're going to need to take them and do what they're doing, doing what they're saying. And in verse three, it says, "As I said to Moses." By following God's word. And when God says it, we do it. And that equation is so simple, but our will gets in the way of that. So if God put something in you to change your life, you need to listen to it. God's calling you to Cambodia instead of China. They both start with a C and end with an A. You know, It's one of those things where God's just, let's just start there. Go where the doors are open and not forcefully push your way one way versus another. And a soft heart is able to make those changes in direction because God calls us to. So in humility, the odds are, as Christians, we've spent a lot of our life not breaking new ground. And if we're humbly honest with ourselves, many of our days and hours are in the wilderness. They're not moving into Canaan. And that's one of those challenges where you've got a desire to want to do that. And that's one of the things where Joshua, remember, was being told by Moses, be strong and courageous. Take the step. Move in that direction. Don't end your days like I have out in the wilderness. So we get to be there. Verse 4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that goes through Iraq, all of the land of the Hittites, that's the north, the great sea going towards the going, great sea toward the going down of the sun, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and sh these shall be your territory. So we kind of just draw this big circle. It's much bigger than modern-day Israel. In fact, the borders of Israel have never reached these definitions until the Bible says at the end of days because Israel doesn't set their foot everywhere they're supposed to. They fail in that. God's promises, though, are not obscure. God's promises are measurable, precise, and considered. This is not a fluffy fairy tale. These are things rooted in geographical features that we can still know of today. And I love that part about it. In the 1800s, there were communications discovered in Egypt. Um... <laughs> where they had, so they found this big vat of letters that the Pharaoh had, and they were all in these little tablets with little things. But the way they sent messages, they'd imprint them into pottery and ship that pottery with trade goods in it down to Egypt. But they got messages from the Hittites that the Hebrews were coming, and they wanted the Egyptians to help them. <laughs> so they have these things from this period of history where the Hittites, the Assyrians, all these other nations in this area were begging for help from the Egyptians to fight the Hebrews who were out in this wilderness and coming. So they knew that Hebrews were coming, and they were scared. A lot of them take off at this time. There's secular sources that do this, did this study. I mean, these aren't this isn't necessarily religious people. These are people digging it up, going, look, the he Hebrews are the Hittites were scared of the Hebrews, and it's really obvious to see what's going on. Lebanon in the Hebrew, it means snow-capped, which made me go look all this up. And we just had a thing with the, 
where we were watching The Chosen going, wait, are there snow-capped mountains in Israel? And sure enough, there are. That's Lebanon and those hills can get snow on them. So we got east and west extremes. God measures and allocates the territory. Uh, it's physical territory. In the New Testament, the territory we're fighting for is not physical territory. In fact, it's really clear in the New Testament um, that we are going after spiritual domains and dominions. And the territory doesn't matter, which is why you have a nation of people that don't have a nation. Um, the pursuit of territory leads to wickedness when you win it, often, and indignation when you lose it. So it's not that we should be in our heart wanting territory from other people. We should be wanting to claim what's God's and, and to have it there. In fact, Malachi 1.4, the last book of the Old Testament says, they may build, but I'll throw it down. They, they shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. It's people that fight for more territory that tend to be the source of evil in the world. So the Israelites aren't, again, being told to go fight for it. They're just being told to walk where God tells them to walk. And I, anyways, I just think that's such a beautiful image from verse 3. So God measures these allocations, these principalities. He claims what is his spiritual territory, um, and, and it moves forward. So the idea of a principality is not in the Old Testament. The word isn't even there. The word territory isn't even mentioned in the New Testament. So the translation is absolute and perfected. Old Testament deals with physical territory. New Testament deals with principalities, spiritual territory. I thought that was kind of cool. Ephesians 6.12, y'all knew I was going to quote this when we got into this, right? For we do not wrestle against, but against principalities, against powers. Susan just got flipped those. Against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Oh, well, how do I do that, Lord? Read Joshua. Let's figure this out. That's the whole point. Israel's victory in the territory will be a witness to all the earth that God can help his people take territory. When God wants to, he can do it. The church's victory over principalities is God's witness to all the earth that we can take territory in heavenly places. We can bring freedom. We can break the chains of bondage of slavery. We can shatter fear. We can take out doubt. And we can do that as we live the way God tells us to live. And those battles are not going to go away. So we all fight battles. It's an option of if we want to do it in a desert or if we want to actually engage in those battles. So then the question is, are you scared? Right? So Joshua's supposed to be strong and courageous because there's things to be scared of out there. And then we get that battle mindset. But I like the, the way we do battle. Verse 5. Because I'm asking, like, okay, I, don't, I just don't want to get into it with people. And then God says this. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So are you scared? You don't need to be because God's with you. There's nothing to be scared of. Um, there's, uh, in verses 3 and 4, all the pronouns there, I don't know if you noticed it, were plural. Uh, here the pronouns are singular. No man should be able to stand against you for all the days of your life as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God, in verse 5, translates, he's not just talking about Israel, he's talking to Joshua personally. So he's going to do that work for Israel, but he's also going to do this very assuring language directly to Joshua. Um, so Joshua sees 40 years of Moses' ministry, and now God's promising him, I'm going to be with you just like I was with Joshua. 
That's a really cool message. Christ says the same thing to us. I will be with you until the end of the age. Where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'm going to be there with you. Welcome Jesus. I just, that thought is amazing. It's so assuring. You can bury Moses, but God just says, I'm with you, Joshua. You're the next one up. You can bury the workman, but the work's going to go on. And I hear just hear that in verse five. It's just going to keep going. There's no reason then to not engage because we can engage and die and God's just going to keep the work going forward. And we just got to be part of advancing territory for as long as we were there. And some of us, the older you get, you realize sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. The work goes on and it just keeps moving forward. Bonnie's seen me lose a couple. So in Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Same promise. There is a reason for victory. And that the promise that Joshua is given is not talent, gifting, skill, ability. You know, Moses was debating with God over his speaking skills. None of that with Joshua. Do you see that? The only reason Joshua is going to succeed that we're given is verse 5. It's because God's with him. There's no other discussion. We don't know a lot more about Joshua's skills and talents. All we know about him is that he obeys God. So this is, and I, I just had to bring this verse in because, you know, I think of these weird things that I grew up with when I was 10, and then I think maybe God made me watch that movie because he wanted that to be in this Bible study. Darth Vader, the image of evil, is facing down Obi-Wan, an old man who can't wield a sword with any talent whatsoever. And Obi-Wan's like, Darth you can't win. You can strike me down and I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That's what's going on. Moses got taken out, but Joshua is going to be more powerful than you can possibly imagine. You can take John the Baptist's head off, but Jesus is way more powerful than anything John the Baptist did. You can take out the worker, but the work goes on. That's the power of God. That's why Christians, when we start getting whacked for our faith, the faith just explodes when that happens because people don't understand. All people can be like, all right, I guess today's the day I'm going to die. Let's go through with it. And all the executioners, the jailers, they don't get it. They don't get how we can live like that with a peace and contentment that surpasses all understanding. It's a powerful thing. So think about what God's saying to Joshua in verse 5 and absolutely how powerful that message is. Joshua, you can go into battle and you can die. I'm just going to be with the next person just like I was with you. And I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. You can't lose. It's just going to keep going. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, Philippians 1.21. Okay, next we get these super cool verses. And we're going to shift from a rah-rah speech in verse 5 to literary excellence in the next few verses, all right? Joshua's trying his hand after 40 years of Moses' songwriting and chiastic forms and, and these things Moses would do. Joshua's like, I'm going to try this myself. So see if you can catch where we're headed with this. I'm just going to read a larger section here. I will not leave you or forsake you, verse 5. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. I'll correct myself. God's saying this to Joshua. So maybe it's not Joshua being a creative writer. Maybe he's just writing down what God gave him and God's actually the brilliant one. So let's go with that. Verse seven, only be strong and very courageous that you might observe to do according to all 
the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Remember, Caleb and Joshua are the only two left from this generation. Everybody else is dead. <clears throat> Moses was the last from him to his generation. So when Moses died, that generation disappeared. And right now you just have Caleb and Joshua still living from the next generation. Everybody else are these whippersnapper kids. So just a point made. So when it says, uh, be strong and of good courage, we're talking to Joshua and Caleb who stood up to the entire nation of Israel as the spies and said, you guys need to go in and just do this. Remember how they stood their ground and everybody was ticked off at them? This, Joshua had some courageous moments. He has strength. And Joshua led them in battle against the Amicalites. He actually is a physically capable person. So when we say strong and courageous here, we're not talking about physical courage or the ability or willingness to fight physically. That's not the problem with Joshua. There's a spiritual element that's going on here. So strength is to hear God and do it, according to these verses. Trusting God is the center of that strength. And if that's the strength, then it doesn't matter how big or strong you are or how thick your neck is. What matters is if you can just do what God says. You can be a very slight person and very powerful in this kind of combat. So every idea, um, every area of life then has something to fear. Only in God we can be fearless. I honestly think every stage of life I've been in, like when I was a kid, I was scared that the older kids would beat me up on my way to school, right? When I was an older kid, I was scared that the girls wouldn't go out with me when I asked them, right? When you first get married, you wonder if you're going to be able to make your wife happy ever. Like, will I ever get this right, right? And you figure those things out. Then you get older and you start thinking, oh, no, am I going to be able to walk when I'm 60? Like, my knees are starting to hurt. And then you get older and you feel a little chest pain and you're like, am I going to make it another five years? There's always something to be worried about. Your hair starts falling out. Is this cancer or is this natural? Right? Balding people, we get this. There's always something to be scared of. But in God, you know, he's numbered your days. You're going to live as long as he wants you to live. You're going to have the abilities he wants you to have. You might have a thorn in your side like Paul did. You know, you might be creepy John and, you know, live on locusts. There's always something to be fearful, but in this, these passages, there's a strong and courageousness that goes in there. But let's get into the chiastic form, the literary structure of these. If you could, get out your pencil and mark your Bible up. Um, there is, uh, in verse 5, I will not leave you or forsake you, is going to pair with the Lord is God is, is with you wherever you go at the bottom of verse 9. Do you see that? And we're going to work in from there. And for those who haven't been here and we've gone through chiasms, remember they didn't have flippable books like we do. They did not have spine technology yet. What they had were scrolls. And when they rolled out the scroll, they would roll it out to a passage. So at the middle of the scroll is, and they didn't also didn't have punctuation points. So they, had, they didn't have question marks. They didn't have exclamation points. If you wanted to make something stand off that page, you put it in a sandwich, and you put a singular line in the middle of a chiastic form, and then out from that, you would sandwich it equal layers on both sides. And what it would do is it would point to the middle of the scroll. So if you really like the passage, we put a bookmark in our Bible. They would roll the scroll on that singular verse that they wanted. 
And as they rolled it out, they would get the same message on either side of the verse. Are you with me on this? Okay, for our new folks. Okay, so five is, I won't leave you or forsake you. The end of nine is, God's with you wherever you go. Let's go in another layer on the sandwich. Verse nine says, be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid or dismayed. You can draw a line up to verse six. You see that? Be strong and of good uh, courage. For this people you shall divide an inheritance of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Verse 7, only be strong and courageous. You can draw a line back down uh, to verse 9. Be strong and of good courage. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 7, strong and of good courage. And then it says, observe to do. And then it says, what I commanded you. And then it says, prosper. You see those key words in 7? Those key words then get used again in the second half of 8 in verse 9. But they get rearranged. In at the second half of verse 8, it says that you may observe. goes with the, the observe from verse 7. There's prosperity, for then it will make your way prosperous, and there's prosperity at the end of verse 7. And then it has, I have, have I not commanded you these things? And then in the middle of verse 7, it says, commanded you these things. And then strong and courageous at the beginning of verse 9, and strong and courageous at the beginning of verse 7. It's hard to explain. It's easier to see. So there's a combination of strong and courageous, observe, do what I command you, and you'll prosper. And those four concepts get combined and rearranged before and after verse 8 as a big chunk. So they go together. And then you get to the middle of the scroll. What's the importance? How do we get God not leaving us, being strong, getting prosperity, observing and doing what we're commanded? Is verse 8 is the middle of this chiasm. And it sticks out like a sore thumb when you kind of roll your scroll that way. The book of this law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Wake up in the morning and think about the Lord. Go to bed and pray about it and savor what this Bible says and, and dwell on it and know it. Um, there's this idea that prosperity is something that has to do with money. In these verses, it doesn't. In verse 7 and 8, it's translated in English as the same word, prosper and prosperous. In the Hebrew, it's the same root word. But it's important to know that that prosperity doesn't have a lot to do with money at all. So when we talk about in verse 7, the word prosper there is sakal. It means to be attentive and wise. It doesn't mean to be rich and wealthy. It means to, it means to be awake and alive, to be intelligent, to be witty, to be doing the word in wisdom, to be prudent. That has nothing to do with wealth or prosperity as we would think of it. In verse 8, prosperous is salak. Some would say that could be the same root word in the Hebrew. It means to make progress or to add to your life. And you could interpret that as like growing your herd, right? But it means, uh, it, you know, I think when you put it in this chiasm, if that's a complement to the verse 7 prosperity, the salak then becomes very clearly about advancing yourself in life in a spiritual way. So if you want to be living that kind of way, that's what that looks like. It says you will make your way. God gives Joshua agency. He's told to do what God tells him to, but Joshua still has to make his way. I thought that was a great line in there too. Works here that God's asking is not to provide salvation. They've already been saved. The works that God's asking of Joshua here is something that Joshua should be doing for the people of Israel because God has told him. And a lot of the things God asks us to do aren't to get our salvation. We've already got it. 
but he asks us to do things for other people so that God's kingdom can go forward. So when we give gifts and we think of people and we're thoughtful and we regard people that don't think they're worthy of being regarded, those are things that advance the kingdom, and we can do that, and that, and that we are asked to do those kinds of things. When words, worlds where we are prospering are things that God does for us, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So it's not that we make our prosperity, it's that we make our way and we advance our life by following God's word, and the prosperity is the natural consequence of that. If we live like God tells us to, we get happy and it works. So, and again, verse 8, the middle of the chiasm, God's word is the equivalent of, of Jesus' word and will for our life. And God says what to do, we do it. John 1, 2, he was in the beginning with God. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was not made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So how do we do these things? How do we start living for God? Before we get any, to any of the battles, we have this beautiful chiasm that God gives to Joshua right in the middle saying, do what I've told you to do. Follow my word, meditate it on it day and night. Don't let it depart from your mouth. We should maybe be saying the things that God says. So I've done a few times where I didn't finish a sentence here and about half of the room could finish the sentence. We got to get to the point where all of us know some of these common ideas and, and, and passages in the Bible. And the only way you do that is by showing up every week and doing Bible study. Maybe adding a Bible study here and there. Maybe doing your own Bible study every day. And you keep coming past these verses that link together the core ideas of the Bible. And they become things that you can just say when you meet people and you talk to people. And then what's really cool is sometimes God puts you in a situation you're utterly unprepared for. And all those words just start pouring out of your mouth. And you see that happening, you're done, and you're like, well, I didn't know I knew the Bible that well. But the Holy Spirit, because you've meditated on those words, they're there when God wants to pull them out of your brain and use them to affect and touch somebody's life. If you're not in God's word, you're in the wilderness. You're going to have a very dry Christian life. And it's miserable because you can't have any fun because now you've got a conscience, and, and you can't go out in the world and do what the world says is fun, and you're not enjoying what God has given you that is equally and far more fun which is to meditate on God's word and watch him work through your life. Way better than Valley Fair, right? So that's just one of these ideas that you, if you let it come out of your mouth, it drives people crazy too. This is the best part. If you ever just tell people, they'll say, they'll come at you with that force of will trying to claim territory. And then you just say, yeah, but God says this. So I'm going to do that. There are people that hate that. They hate it. Because you're not giving them territory, you're claiming it as God's. And then they start coming at you. They'll take John the Baptist's head off. Peter gets hung on a cross upside down. They take Jesus out and they do it mean-like. Those people don't like to be told that this is God's territory. God's claimed me. I'm his own. I'm going to live the way God tells me to. You got a problem with somebody? You go talk to somebody. I'm, God tells me if I got a pro problem with somebody, it's my job to talk to them. And you live that way and you start speaking God's word back to people. And if they're not in God's word, they will hate you for it. So, And then you can just be like, thanks, God. I got that cool opportunity. And to do it with joy is the best part. If you got to do it like a fight, like you're at a protest line and you're arguing with somebody, you go to sleep and you, it just has this sick feeling you sit with all night because you engaged in a hateful argument. But when you can just joyfully be yourself and say, no, thanks, I'm content with my God. That's an amazing place to be. And as God prepares you and you go through life and you get those opportunities, you realize the power of God is the joy of the Lord. It's not the hate of the Lord. 
and it's not the judgment of the Lord. And the way Joshua is being prepared to take territory is to meditate on God's word day and night and to dwell in there and to not let his word depart from his mouth. So the day somebody calls you overboard, radical, Jesus freak, biblical bully, embrace that stuff. Hold on to it. You're on the right track. You're in the world, but not of the world. Go for it. See what the Lord's going to do in your life next. Uh, zoom in on what's in the middle of a chiastic form and put that on your wall and memorize it and keep it. Put it on a t-shirt. When you see those chiastic forms, those are key points in the Bible. Point made? All right. Um, you shall meditate on his word day and night. It's hard to meditate on God's word if you've only read it once. It's hard to chew on a piece of gum only once and then spit it out. To meditate on God's word is to put something in your head and to repeat it and go through it. This is where some of the Catholic traditions come from with the rosary. And they start praying it over and over and over and over again. I don't know if that's what we're talking about with meditate on God's word, but the principle is I want that idea to go through my head a billion times. Rhetorically, what you're doing is creating a neural pathway through your head. So it actually works that way. God designs your brain to create neural pathways and the more you say a phone number, the more that phone number is stuck. I still remember my address from when I was five because it goes through your head and you form a neural pathway and you put it into your long-term memory. If you just read it and go past it, you don't remember it. And the general rule is if you hear something seven times, you'll remember it. So when you're going through the Word of God, you need to be doing it repeatedly so that it sticks. Michael's nodding. He's like, I understand these concepts. <laughs> yeah. So... The word meditate, and I think we need to embrace this idea, is the word haga in the, in the Hebrew. I'm pronouncing that with a Minnesota accent. Uh, it means to moan, to utter, to plot, or to speak something, or to imagine something. Think of the mental work that has to happen to make a plot. If you want to rob a bank... And you see those movies where they're robbing banks? And I'm not encouraging anyone to rob a bank. But they have the table in the middle of the room with all the blueprints of the plans of the bank, ways to go in, constructs to the safe. Good thieves actually have actually bought that safe and put it in their secret lair. And they've worked on cracking the safe before they ever go into the bank, right? If we're going to take God's territory, we have to plot God's word in our head like that. We have to deliberately think about how we're going to engage with people that hate the Lord and how we're going to do it with love and grace to when we get to the throne of judgment, we can just say, God, I stepped where you asked me to step. And it didn't go well, and God will say, no, it went exactly the way I planned it to go. Everything happened how I wanted it to because you were faithful in what we did. Meditating on God's word and, having it, and have it be what God tells us to do. God's word needs to be chewy, and we need to put it in our mouth and chew on it more than until our jaw gets sore, Right? And then we go to a new passage and start with a new piece of gum and the flavor is amazing and then we chew on it and absorb it and keep going. And we never spit it out. We let it come out when God wants it to come out. Anyways, the metaphor breaks down at some point. How do we, how do we imagine what God's doing if we meditate on God's word? It, it doesn't fit. Note the word mouth is there. Meditate and observe. It comes out our mouth, it's in our mind, and it's something we do. To observe something in this context, that word means an action. It is not a mental observance. It's a physical acted out observance, like you observe a ritual. Okay, So we just need to rest in God's word. It actually holds up when you do that. 
or that idea of come and see. Like, show people that God's word makes a difference in your life because you do these things. And just watch that happen. If you don't believe me, try meditating on God's word and see what happens. So these are bookends. Be strong and of good courage. Come on either end of the chiastic form. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Why would those be the outside of the chiastic form? Because that's the core of it all. That's how this happens. If you want to be strong and, of, uh, strong and courageous, if you want to not be afraid or not be dismayed, you meditate on God's word and you, and you let that be what comes out of your mouth. That's the key to Joshua's strength. All right, I wanted to go over that point a lot. I wanted to meditate on that thought just a bit. I'll end, I'll, I'll end on that thought and go on to verse 10 with Romans, 6, or Romans 8, 36. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through Joshua, God's going to bring Israel to victory, and he's going to do it because of this. And if Joshua does this right, he becomes a, a typology of Jesus Christ because what comes out of Jesus' mouth is actually the word of God. So if Joshua does this and meditates on it day and night and let God's word be what comes out of his mouth, he's going to be an image of Christ in the Old Testament. If he screws it up, he won't. Moses screwed it up with whacking the rock instead of not doing it. It's not that Joshua is Christ, but he's going to become an image of that. Verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp, and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving to you to possess. Officers there are shatirim, or scribes or recorders. So the officers are actually the people that would write things down or replicate the scrolls in the offices. So notice that the um, chiasm comes before crossing over the Jordan. Meditating and learning comes before any sort of motion in the kingdom. So that passage where nothing's happening is where everything's happening. Okay, There is a three days here. Pass through the camp and command the people saying, uh, within three days, you will cross over the Jordan. That means that the crossing of the Jordan will take three days. It doesn't mean they're going to leave in three days. And I think in the English, our, we're a calendar-heavy society, and we just think, oh, we're leaving in three days. I'll set my timer. And they didn't have timers and wristwatches that we know of. You never know with time travel. Um, but we do know that the idea of crossing the Jordan with two million people is going to be a three-day process. So he's saying to them, get your supplies ready for a three-day journey but he doesn't tell them when that journey is going to start. So they get three days of provisions. It's going to take three days for all of this to happen. The actual beginning of the spirit-filled life of Joshua is going to be a three-day journey through a, a place where it would be a walk of death with a rushing, torrenting river coming up. At this point, the river hasn't stopped that look or appearance. So God doesn't waste time. The waiting is the exercise. The preparedness is the growth. Joshua's been doing 40 years before he really gets going on his ministry. But once we're ready to go, uh, get ready, let's move. Verse 12. The Reubenites and the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua, to them, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, but you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and you will help them until the Lord has given you and your brothers rest as he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord 
Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Notice at the very end there that Moses assigned it to them. This wasn't what God wanted for them. They, if you remember this story, this goes back to Numbers 32. They were, they were fighting through the wilderness, and they're like, we really like this land. Can we just have this land? Because they had just beaten up the Moabites. And they're like, we would rather just stay here if we could. And Moses is like, this isn't, that's where you're supposed to be. But if this is what you want, he goes in, talks to the Lord. The Lord says, whatever, if that's what they want, they can have it. So one condition, you go at the front of the army and you help fight and take the Lord's territory. And then you can go back and take that land if you want it. So Joshua essentially in these verses is reminding them of, of that promise. You're going to do that. Armed for battle. All your mighty men of valor to help them. Uh, the men of valor here is the strongest elite troops that Israel has. So if we look at the counting that we saw back in Numbers, there's about 110,000 people amongst these two and a half tribes. But what we're going to see as we go forward is only about 40,000 of them are their elite shock troops. So these are the people that are big and strong and scare the enemy, and they're going to go in front of the army. Um, those filled with the Spirit, those ministered, those that are in the church that minister to the hurting and the broken are generally the healthiest spiritual people you have. You don't have people that are coming in and they're all messed up doing your ministry necessarily. So I'm thinking of the body of Christ. Not everyone needs to be that strong Christian. It's okay to just be a Christian that's healing and, and resting. And you get some Christians just got done with a huge ministry. They just got back from Cambodia and they're tired. You don't put that person right up in front of the pulpit to talk about Cambodia necessarily. Maybe give them a couple months to just take a break and rest, and rejuvenate, and recharge, and get ready for their next thing that God's got for them. So I like the, I actually like the idea that these people are keeping their promise, but out of the 110,000, only 40,000 are the ones that have to go march in front. The other ones, the, the ones that are their weaker vessels can just relax. We don't want to break people. We want the strong to be in the front. So those filled with the Spirit are going to be the ones doing that ministry. As a matter of promise, that's how it's supposed to be. So again, I'll don't trust my word, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another, whether one member suffer or all the members suffer with it, or one member gets honored or all the members rejoice with it. The idea is in the body of Christ, we just take care of each other. And, and sometimes people have up weeks and other people have down weeks, but we want to make sure that when somebody has a down week, we help uplift them. When somebody has a huge week, we keep them humble. Right? We want to just try to keep things in balance a little bit when we see that sort of thing. No hesitation. Uh, they're going to heed this. We're going to see that they heed it uh, without any reservation. There's no challenge to Joshua on this. So verse 16, so they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us to do, we will do. That's pretty much obedience. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, we will heed you. They didn't heed Moses in all things. They're exaggerating there a little bit. Uh, we're going to heed you. Only the Lord your God will be with only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. We'll follow you as long as you follow God. We've had some people in the church in the last couple months, big names in the church. Frankly, big names in the church are the people that the media wants to celebrate. In part, I kind of think because maybe they're not real Christianity. And that's why people puff them up is because they're ex either a negative or outlier example of like a normal Christian faith or Christian theology. Just my theory. So I like verse 17 because they're saying, as long as you follow the Lord, we'll follow you. 
that means when we see these great names in the faith fall because of some sin that they've done, it doesn't necessarily mean that at one point in their life they weren't doing great work. I mean, I'm thinking of Rabbi Zacharias, some of the writings he did, the books he did, the videos he did, outstanding. And I don't personally know what happened you know, with some of the sin in his life and what he did, but some of the work that he did and the apologetics work he did was really outstanding, right? So when we see that these people say, hey, we're with you as long as you're with the Lord, I think that's how we treat Christian leaders and that no Christian leader gets put on a pedestal so high that we can't knock them off when they stop following the Lord. Knock it off. That's what you were saying to me last week. As soon as you screw up, Sean, I'm on you for that. I'll get on your case. Praise the Lord. Because the Bible says I will screw up and I will have troubles and I will have struggles. And don't ele ever elevate a human being above where they should be. So I love what the, these people are saying to Joshua. It's like, don't puff yourself up so much that you, that you think you got us forever. If you're with God, we're with you because we're with God. Great equation. As long as you're sticking to what it says, we're with you. So verse 18, whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. We'll take care of that for you, Joshua. Only be strong and of good courage. Ooh, what did they just say at the end? Exactly what God was telling them at the end. All right, we'll go back to that. I like that there's no hesitation here. There's complete agreement in verse 17. They're recognizing that Joshua is the new anointed leader. That leadership transition happened smoothly. He's even, they're even praying for him in verse 17. I like that too. Um, uh, verse 18, uh, they're, gonna, they're basically saying we're going to be your guardians in verse 18. So not only are they not grumbling, they're saying we're going to take on this extra role we never promised. We're going to be your personal guard. If anybody screws with you, they're screwing with us. Do you see them saying that in verse 18? I love that. What a beautiful thing. Um, we will heed you. And this is an answer to a promise at the end of Deuteronomy that God, that Moses and God made to Joshua. The people are going to follow you and you won't have the same problems that Moses had. So when they say this, this is our first interaction with Israel after the death of Moses. When they say this, they're actually fulfilling a prophecy that was made just a couple chapters ago. You're not going to have these problems of obedience with these people. They're going to just follow you. So it's an example, wherever you send us, we will go is a beautiful example of unity as a nation. They have one mind, one heart, and one God, and they're all on the same page. It was amazing. We're sitting around a campfire last night, <laughs> and we're talking about just the unity of the body because Mache is not a church. It's a parachurch organization, right? We have lots of denominations as part of it. So I mentioned one organization, and we're feeling this wonderful unity of spirit. And we mentioned this one organization, and one of the people there goes, well, actually, that place has got some issues. It's amazing how quick in the Christian church we want to go attack other Christians, right? It's just amazing. Instead of pointing ourselves to God and serving God with everything that we have, we want to start breaking down and saying who's not with Christ and who is with Christ. That's a really humbling and hard thing to do, but the only person we should be worried about is ourselves. Are you right with Christ? Are you doing what God's called you to do? Are you following the Lord? Is the body that you're with that you know face-to-face is everybody in that body beating that battle with sin and pursuing holiness and taking territory for the king? And if that's not the case, we need to be helping each other out with that, ministering to one another, encouraging one another. And we have been together for a while. We've seen some ups and downs in our lives. And so we pray for one another and we dig into it with each other. So I just love that idea of wherever you send us, we'll go and we will heed you as a one-two punch 
of partnership and fellowship that he has with these people. These people that didn't pick the right territory, they're going to follow. So maybe they're not. The other Israelites are probably like, well, we're going to get our real inheritance from God. You guys are outsiders on east of the Jordan people. But these people step up and do the job because they have the right heart. You ever seen that in the church? The people that are really doing the work in the church aren't the people that get regarded or the ones that are elevated the highest, but they're the ones doing the work and they have the right heart, even though they're the outsiders. Love that image where Matthew draws the circle in the sand. Sorry for the spoiler. And he says, this is the whole world. And then he puts a mark outside the circle and says, and this is me. And God takes those people and he uses them, just like he's using the Reubenites and the Gadites to be this first model of compliance and obedience and unity of spirit that we're going to see through the book of Joshua. He takes the people that made the wrong choice at the start and he shows them making the right choice under Joshua. So when it comes to Yeshua, he takes outsiders and he makes them the heroes. He takes the last and he makes them first. He takes the people that can't fit in and he makes them heroes in the faith. So when they become the strong people at the front of the army, down in their heart, they know they're really the weak person that screwed up back then. And they owe this one to God. And there's this utter heart of humility because of the brokenness they've had in the past. And God uses that. And it doesn't mean you got to go find a broken testimony. So don't go out to sin just so grace can abound. But let's celebrate grace when we see it too. And let's celebrate people that don't have to go do that because the army is going to be bigger than just the people at the front. There's the people that are behind them that give them the weight too, right? That army. So we see this happen. If we serve God out of obligation, it's worthless. It's an ought to. If you go to church on Sunday morning because you feel like you ought to do it, it's worthless. God tells us that. It's like clattering noise if it's not filled with love. If we serve God out of love and with a willing heart like we see in verses 16 through 18, it's absolutely an eternal act that gets written in God's book of remembrance for all of eternity. This is why when the kids were little, I've told you guys this story before, and we would train them to do the dishes, and they would be like, oh, I want to do the dishes. We'd be like, okay, you don't have to, and we'd go do the dishes. Remember this? If you can't do the dishes with a happy heart, don't do it. Casey, when you're collecting the dishes today, you're like taking Zach, Zach and Grant used to do that with such verve and joy in competition. And then we see Casey stepping up going, I think I'm going to gather the plates today. And that's cool. Let's move different people into different positions of service. And when you feel led to do it and there's love in your heart when you do it, then it's an eternal act of gift and salvation. When you do it because you're trying to puff yourself up, it's worthless. You do it because you have to and your parents are making you, it's worthless. It has no weight in the kingdom. But these people doing this, we get this lead off. They get to be the first real narrative in the whole histories of the Bible because they just served with obedience and they did it right now when they were asked to do it. Then they say at the very end, I told you to come back to this, you know, we'll follow you as long as you serve the Lord and just be strong and of good courage. They use words. Have you ever had this happen in the kingdom where you're reading the word and God's saying something to you through his word and then you're praying and you're praying about it and you start getting this, you're praying this Bible with respect to God and then you go out and you go to your job and somebody comes up to you and says something to you that's the exact same wording and you're like, holy moly, how does God speak to us? One of the big questions. We meditate on his word day and night. We pray about it. We let his word come out of his mouth and then it gets confirmed by other believers in verse 18. Only be strong and of good courage. They say the same thing that God said privately to Joshua. And now we start going, oh, that's how we hear God. That's how God speaks to us. But that doesn't happen if we don't minister to one another so God can work through us. I'm going to give you a cool example and embarrass Susan a little bit. 
we were talking last week and praying and Steph and I have been saying for like a half year, like what we really love about Bible study, it's just a sweet fellowship. Or we'd go visit a church when we do church tourism when we're on the road. We go down to Red Wing and we're like, man, Red Wing, it's just a sweet fellowship. Just brothers and sisters that love one another. It's just sweet. And we'd say this word sweet we've been using for like a year. You didn't know any of that. But then you were sitting here talking afterwards and Susan's like, it's just a sweet fellowship. It's just nice. And it just, I don't even know if we remember it, but it just came out of your mouth. It was just, it's just sweet fellowship. And then something stirs in your heart because you're like, oh, God. Like you're confirming something that needs to be in my heart. And then you just meditate on that day and night. Lord, I want that word to stick in my heart. Because a prayer is like a sweet aroma unto the Lord. And that's where that kind of came from, from God's word. Confirmed by Steph and I just going to places and seeing that God's word is alive and well in the church. And having a sister in Christ on her own accord come out and say, what a sweet fellowship. And you're just like, God, are you trying to say something to me here? You're speaking through your word. You're sp speaking through my brothers and sisters in fellowship. You're speaking with people that didn't even know that conversation and saying identical things over and over and over again. How does God speak to us? Through his word, through the fellowship, through the ministry of the saints. You get these three great examples. So I get to, you can chew on that one for a while and look at verse 18 and think of the impact that would have had on Joshua's heart. Because he's hearing it from God, and it's like, it's like when you hear something from your parent. Your parent says, oh, you look beautiful today, or handsome today, depending on how your parent said, would say that to you. And when you hear that from your mom, no offense, moms, it's just not the same thing. It's like you'd say I look good no matter what. I could wear totally mismatching outfits, and my mom would think I'm awesome. But when then you go out in the world, and that significant other of, says to you, you look good today, mm, it just stirs your heart. You know your mom loves you. You know your mom's powerful. You know your mom would die for you. But when you hear it out in the world too, it just has this impact that now you believe it because what your mom said actually matches what the world is saying. Think of the impact that verse 18 would have on Joshua at the beginning of this adventure. God's saying it. Well, of course, God, you'd say that because you love me. you know. But then all of a sudden somebody else says it. This is sweet. And you're like, oh, now it is. Now it has impact. Now it's real. And it's amazing. Not that it's less real with God, but God confirms because we're idiots. And he just shows us things because we're thick-headed people. And he wants us to know it. Be strong and of good for, be of strong and of good courage for Joshua. He says it back in verse 6. He says it again here. It comes with confirmation, the power of God, and the joy that Joshua had to have to say, let's go do this. Because it also would be another thing. When Joshua, the, the servant of Moses, has to go to the mighty tribes of Israel and say, ah, oh, you remember your promise? He had to be thinking about that. Like, I got to go ask these people to march in the front of the army. And that's not going to be easy because they're probably not going to want to because they're the people that wanted the land that God didn't promise. So you got those conversations you don't really want to have because you think they're going to be really difficult conversations. But this conversation turns out absolutely with God blessing it and ordaining it. So Joshua had to not only be confirmed in the strong and courageous, but he had to be confirmed that God was going to move the hearts of his own people to do this. So just put yourself in his shoes. Imagine that. Imagine what a, a message strong and courageous would be for Joshua. And again, it gets repeated to him seven times, uh, as we see in the scriptures. So God speaks through his people. Amen. All right, we'll continue on with Joshua 2 next week. Let's say a word of prayer.
Dear Lord and King, we thank you. We thank you for Joshua as a character as we get to know him as a servant to Moses who is a servant of God. Uh, Lord, we know that, that Joshua has this humble heart, uh, that he is told to be strong and courageous because maybe he's not feeling that way at the beginning. Uh, he hasn't seen you stop the Jordan and he hasn't seen the walls of Jericho go down. He's trusting that the God that worked through Moses is going to work through him too. And Lord, we have the same struggle. Sometimes we wonder, Lord, if the God that parted the Red Sea can actually change our lives. The God that stirred the hearts of the Reubenites can actually stir the heart of that person we know in our family or at work or a friend. Lord, we know you are mighty and you are good and you can move mountains when you want to. You say if we pray for it, you will answer it. You say where we're gathered, you'll be there. Um, Lord, we just want you in our lives. We want to enjoy a sweet fellowship so that we can hear your word and that we can do your word and observe it. Um, Lord, we want to meditate on your word day and night, uh, that it shall not depart from us, Lord, that we shall speak it with our mouths and we shall observe it and do it. Uh, teach us those things, Lord. Guide us in those things and be with us simply and quietly. Lord, confirm your word, not only through your word, but through the people we know. Help us to be bold in saying the things you put on our heart, to speak to people and speak into their lives and to encourage them and minister to them. Lord, if there's people in this room right now that are broken and hurting and worried and anxious, Lord, I pray you heal that, um, that you quickly and powerfully change their hearts to be ones that trust in you. We know you're still on your throne. We know there's nothing that's a surprise to you. And Lord, we know that if you put us through trials that you love us enough and trust us enough to get through those you would never give us a trial beyond which you've given us what we need to handle it. So, Lord, give us that strength, that courage that you gave to Joshua. Give us the power of your word and give us the truth of, of your gospel and help us to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, Post it on your social media.